Hello and welcome to the Japan Archives, a podcast where we'll be delving into the histories and mythologies from Japan's long history. I'm your host, Thomas. And I'm your co-host, Heather. We'll also be reading a poem for you every week and giving a little history about the poet who wrote it. Ikimashou! Hey guys, and welcome back. We're on episode 35 now of the Japan Archives. And like we said last week, we wanted to continue our story of the Shinto mythologies, which we haven't talked about now for quite a while, I think. Weeks and weeks and weeks. So we're going to get back into that today. But as usual, before we start, how are you doing, Heather? Doing pretty good. It's... um a rainy day here well it was raining and then it stopped but the um the trees are starting to blossom here there's little buds about to pop up there's some spring flowers and some lovely spring pollen it's everywhere now but good how about yourself everything's good here i just finished season one of star trek picard it was <gasps> a very good finale so if you haven't watched it i would recommend it i haven't seen it at all oh thank you for reminding me Oh my gosh. Anyway, today's episode. Do you remember where we left off the story, Heather, before we jump in? Oh, we're definitely after the banquet. And did he go and hide from someone? I think we were at the point of hiding. Yeah, Susano. So the sun goddess's brother has come up to heaven and he's acting like a bit of a tool, destroying fields and things. And as we ended the episode, he basically caused his sister to... Be frightened while she was in the weaving hall and she injures herself with her weaving tools with the shuttle and so she flees into the rock cave and as she is basically the embodiment of the sun it means that darkness descends upon heaven as well as the earth below and that yeah that's where we left the story amaterasu has fled into the rock cave and so darkness has descended upon literally everything in existence so all the spirits of heaven they decide to gather upon the banks of the river known as the ame no yasu no kawa which means uh, heaven's tranquil stream while they're all here they get together and they're trying to decide what should be done to basically try and get amaterasu out from the cave again like we said this was due to her meddling brother and his ex while he was in heaven the document known as the Kojiki, it states that the god known as Amoikane is the one who is left to decide what actually needs to be done. So he's put in charge of basically figuring out what needs to be done. They do several things. So to start off with, they gather some cockerels from the mythical land known as Tokoyo. They then also gather stone from the heaven's tranquil stream, as well as iron from the mountains which are in heaven. It's said that the spirit Amasumara is also brought in to help with these dealings, although the stories don't actually say what she actually does. It just says, by the way, this deity turns up. In addition to that, we have Ishikori Dome, who is said to have fashioned a mirror, as well as Tama no Oya, who makes a necklace of Magatama beads. Now the Magatama Yes, go on. You're going to answer my question. Keep going. Oh, uh, you were going to ask what they were, weren't you? So the Magatama beads are 
they're quite well known in Japan. Like, if I showed you a picture of them, a bit like last week with the Vajra, you would definitely know what it is. So they're the little comma-shaped beads that you have in Japan. They're known as Magatama. I know exactly what you're talking about. Thank you. I can picture it right now. That's okay. After this mirror and this necklace has been fashioned, two other deities are brought together, known as Ameno Koyane and Ameno Futodama. And it's said that they conduct divination together before they then gather up a tree from Mount Kagu, where they then place the mirror and the Magatama jewels upon it. It's then that the spirit Ameno Taji Karao he then places himself just outside of the rock cave. After this, another deity. So there's quite a lot of deities in this story. So this one known as Ameno Uzume, she then performs a lewd dance, which involves her exposing herself. This causes everyone in attendance to start laughing and having a general good time, which then causes the sun goddess Amaterasu to peer tentatively out of the cave, wondering how it was possible for people to actually be happy during her absence. I guess in a way, I don't know. For me, that's a bit interesting. Like she says, people can't be happy unless my presence is known. I don't know what you feel about that. Well, yeah, I'm kind of pointing that out. That that is quite a nice little point. I, I hadn't gotten to thinking about that yet. So, well, I mean, if, if you're responsible for the sun and there's no light for, you know, a long time, you know, it, it, it can actually, not having sunlight can cause some depression. So I think she's got, she got some scientific basis there, possibly. True, but you can also have fun during the nighttime. This is true. You can go out dancing. As Amino Uzume did, you can look at beautiful stars. There's still lots of nice, lovely things, you know, fireflies you see at night. So, but I guess to have so much happiness, maybe, or like, what are you guys doing out? Like fear of missing out. Like, what are you guys doing without me? I suppose that is more of what it is. She's like, oh, they're having fun without me. What are they actually doing? So again, it's more like the, I think like we said for the last few weeks now, like, how things are being translated can actually affect how you interpret things. So she's peered out of the rock cave now, wondering why people are having such a good time without her. And once she's actually partly outside of the cave once more, the deity that we mentioned before, so Ameno Taji Karao, he grabs her and pulls her from the cave, which then basically brings the sunlight back into heaven and back into the earth and all the other realms. Immediately after this, it said that Futodama and Koyane then take a sacred boundary rope. So if you want to imagine what these would look like, if you've ever been to a Japanese temple and you see the ropes tied around the trees and things like that, something very similar in that regard. And they take this rope and stretch it behind Amaterasu so that she's barred from re-entering into the rock cave. I was going to ask, so why did they, uh, everyone got together, they had birds and stone and iron and mirrors and the random spirit just kind of coming and hanging out and a necklace and a tree. But essentially one goddess just does a dance, makes everyone laugh, and then she comes out. So did they need all of those things before to actually do a dance to get 
her to come out? Like what, why was there all this preparation when it was something just kind of, kind of simple? Well, Heather, I am glad you asked that question. Ooh. Because like we said, these stories, I'm, I'm mostly drawing from the Kojiki and the Nihongi. So the two oldest texts that talk about these mythologies. There are others which we could use that I do have, but they're almost identical to at least the one of the Nihongi or the Kojiki. But the thing about those two documents is, even though they talk about the same stories, there are several things that differ. Whereas both stories do talk about the mirror and the trees and the things like that, it was only in the Kojiki that they actually elaborate more on it. In the Kojiki, it's said that basically Ame no Futodama and Ame yo Koyane, they use this mirror that's on the tree and they place it before her face. So when she starts to peer out of the rock cave, they take the mirror and put it in front of her. They use this as a way of tricking her a bit more to come out of the cave, which is why later Ame no Taji Karao can then grab her and pull her fully from the rock cave. By placing the mirror in front of her, she sees her own reflection and these two deities say that they are very happy right now because there is someone out here who is more beautiful than Amaterasu actually was. And so this causes her to step a bit further out of the cave to try and figure out who this person actually is, when in actuality, she is looking just at her own reflection. Your face looks a little confused. Does she not know what she looks like? I guess maybe she doesn't look in the mirror very often. Maybe they've only just invented mirrors <laughs> while she was in the rock cave. I'm not sure. Also, isn't it a little dangerous to shine the sun in a mirror? It can cause a fire. But when you are, in fact, the sun, I doubt she could damage herself. That would be the hope. That actually is pretty clever. Like, oh, someone's more beautiful than you. Look, see? Oh, no, it's you. Yeah, I like that element of the story. But like you said, if you only ever read the Nihongi, you would never come across that mm. addition to the story. So a lot of these mythologies, yeah, you have to read all of the books in tandem like I said, she's now out of the cave. So what actually became of her brother? So Susanoo, who caused all of this darkness to basically happen. Well, he was fined by all the gods and goddesses. And it was quite a large fine. They fined him basically to offer to them 1,000 tables full of food. After that, even though they ask him for all these offerings, they aren't going to actually forgive him, and then they decide to exile him from heaven. In addition to these offerings and exiles, again, this is where the two different texts come into play. So you have one version in the Nihongi. It states that the gods also pulled out all his hair. And in addition to this, there is an alternate version in the same text, which said they also pulled out all his toenails. And then when you look at the Kojiki, they cut off his toenails, his fingernails, as well as his beard as penance for what he did. But I think what they said when it came to his beard is instead of actually cutting it off, they plucked it out hair by hair. Mm, all right. So yeah, he had some penalties. So he needs to give all this food to the gods. So he approaches a goddess known as Ogetsuhime for her help. And she's basically like a food goddess of some variety and she does this by providing the food to him using her various like orifices so her mouth her navel her nose things like that and each different orifice gives 
birth to different types of food. Now, Susanoo, unfortunately, finds this food to be disgusting due to the origins of where it's come from. And so even though he's already in a lot of trouble for everything he's done, he is actually so disgusted in the food that he is given to help him with his offerings that he actually decides to kill the goddess Ogetsuhime before leaving heaven forever. Interestingly, this particular tale we've actually already done in a previous episode, back in episode 12, just in a wholly different form. And this was the one where we used the her other brother, the moon god, Tsukiyomi, and his descent to earth where he met the deity known as Ukemochi, and she basically does the same thing. She provides him food from her different orifices, and Tsukiyomi similarly also kills her, which then leads to the separation of day and night. So, again, a completely... It's not an exact copy of a tale, but again, they're reusing the stories in the different texts to basically achieve the same outcomes, to separate Amaterasu from her siblings. So that's the story over for now. Again, it was quite a short one with these Shinto stories. They normally fit quite nicely into very small sections. And that's actually the last we will hear about Amaterasu, at least for a while. Maybe a few things of note about the other places and spirits that we mentioned in today's episode. In regards to Tokoyo that we mentioned, this is actually like a mythical land and paradise, which is said to have been filled with many immortal beings, as well as being covered in many, many, many golden orange orchards. It's basically said to be located generically across the sea, and that's actually all we know about its location. It's never specifically stated where it could be. Mount Kagu that we mentioned. This is one of three different mountain peaks in Japan, which forms part of the Yamato Sanzan. So the three hills of Yamato. The other two peaks in this range are Mount Unebi and Mount Miminashi. Now, this mountain, relatively small. It's only 154 meters in height in total. But the interesting thing additionally to say about it is that historically it's said to have descended from heaven to reside in Japan. And it's also said to be the home of the spirit known as Naki Sawame, who was a spirit of mourning, who was said to live at the base of the tree trunks on the mountain. I looked up where it was located and it's in... Not a prefecture. Oh, it is? It is. Yamato Sanzen is uh, the three mountains of Yamato in Kashihara, Nara prefecture. Mm, okay. So I suppose if you're ever in Nara and you wish to visit the mountain, you can say that you were on the mountain that was visited by the gods. So moving on to the, well, the several spirits that we mentioned today. Trying to keep up with the names can be a bit confusing at times. Amoi Kane, so the guy who was in charge of making the decisions on what would happen. He was also known as Tokoyo no Omoi Kane. Tokoyo being the name of the place of the immortals because he went there to get the cockerels. And basically this deity is seen in general as the advisor to heaven. When it comes to Amasu Mara, this is actually the deity of blacksmiths. Mm. And that leaves the rest of the spirit. So Ishikori Dome, I find 
interesting in that you can find a slightly different version of events, at least surrounding her in this part of the story. If we go and look at a document known as the Kogo Shui or the Gleaning of Ancient Words, it said that when she made these mirrors, the first one she actually made was defected in a way and so transformed and turned itself into the spirit known as Hinokuma. The other interesting thing I want to say is that a lot of Japanese clans, so like we've mentioned some before in episodes, like the Fujiwara clan was quite a big clan in Japan. A lot of these actually claimed descent from the different Shinto deities. So Ishikore Dome is said to have been the ancestor of the clan known as the Mirror Makers. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to find anything to tell me what the Mirror Makers actually were known as in Japanese. So if anyone does know, please let me know because it has bugged me for literally years that I don't know what this clan was actually called. And similarly, uh, the spirit Tama no Oya is said to have been the ancestor of the clan called the Jewel Makers. And that leaves three more gods who we know as the ancestor of different clans, but these ones we actually know the names of the clans. And we have Ameno Uzume, who was the ancestor of the Sarume clan, Ameno Futodama, who was the ancestor of the Imbe clan, and Ameyo Konyane, who was the ancestor of the Nakatomi. That is my tale for today, as well as a little bit about the, a little bit more about the gods from this tale. But yeah, what did you think? Maybe you don't have as many questions today because I did provide a lot more information on the gods. So maybe I took all your questions from you this week. Which is totally fine with me. I, I love, I love learning all of the different things. It was interesting to get an, the continuation of that story from, oh gosh, was it last year? It was... I think it was before Christmas. It feels like it was before Christmas. I remember being like, ah, what about the sun? What about the sun? So like I was relieved that the sun came out. Very interesting way to bring out the sun and to get some, like I didn't realize that some of these uh, de deities, is that the correct pronunciation? Deities? I say deities. Thank you. Deities. <laughs> I didn't realize they were like the ancestors of the different kind of clan so that was that was really interesting to learn also i'm looking at the kanji for omoi kane and that's really interesting because uh the first well you've got two different readings or two different kanji but the last one is actually omoi like thinking like to think and like kane which is money so if i was looking at that i would think think about money which i don't think that's the proper interpretation, but that's what that kanji looks like to me. So that was kind of interesting little little note. As you're studying or trying to study kanji, I mean, there's so many, and especially because these are probably like, these are older, way older kanji and older Japanese names. Not always really <laughs> sure which one they're using and the readings can be difficult, but it is nice to kind of have that familiarity when looking at those kanji. I'm like, oh, I know that one. And then I look at Ishikori Dome and go, oh my gosh, I don't know <laughs> what that is at all. <laughs> I enjoyed that, getting the, the next part of the story. So yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm just going back and glancing at everything and seeing if there's any other questions I have, because I feel like I probably will. If you have no more questions, then I guess I'm ready to head on over to the literature corner for today.
Alrighty then. Today I have a poem. I have a poem by Takurai Kikaku, and he is also known by the name Enomoto Kikaku and was born in 1661 and died 1707. He is a haikai poet and a student of Matsuo Basho. So we're revisiting Basho again. Takurai was interesting because instead of joining his father's profession, which his father was a doctor, he chose to become a haikai poet instead. Now, I don't believe we've talked about haikai before. And haikai is a linked verse poetry. The meaning comes from vulgar, are earthy, and it used satire and puns to convey meaning, which、uh, I do, I do,、uh, you know, I do love a pun. So it's, it's, it's interesting that I would eventually come to a more pun poet. I'm not really sure if Kikaku's father was exactly thrilled with him choosing to become an earthy poet rather than a doctor. But based on the searches I did, I didn't find any information about his father protesting or demanding he become a doctor. I'm not sure if this was as, as a vulgar type poet. I'm not sure if that was a、mm, more like a, an okay profession to change from, from like doctor to a poet, but I didn't see anything. So I'm going to assume his father was, was okay with that. I do wonder if it was more a case of. I feel, well, at least I get the impression that poetry in Japan was a noble profession in a way because it was showing your intelligence and your prowess with words. So, even though obviously being a doctor was, would have been a very respected job, I do wonder if even in the 16 and 1700s, if poetry was still seen as an intellectual occupation to have. That's a really good point. I actually would probably agree with you on that because doing some other research into other poets,、um, there was even like during a specific time period, there was the ideal of like literature and poetry being like one of the highest ideals, along with like specific aspects of, of love and beauty. So that kind of aspiration to the intellectual and beauty and love and that communication, which is they. Communicate a lot with the at least the more higher classes to communicate with that poetry between everyone, between lovers, between what would they be called? Not kings, but the leaders and their advisors. So that communication between poetry plus having all of the contests. I like I like where you went with that. And the more I the more I study poetry in Japanese poetry, the more I feel like. I keep just scratching the surface, and there's so much here. I mean, it's a long history of, of Japanese poetry because it's been done for centuries. <laughs> and I, I definitely feel like the more I learn, the more I really don't know and I don't understand, which is kind of lovely because now I have to keep diving and finding different things. And I know I'm going to look back a year from now and go, oh, why did I say that? <laughs> Which I've already done with some of the previous episodes with the poetry going, oh, I didn't really know, but that's okay. It's, it's really nice to learn. Regarding haikai poetry, Basho wanted to elevate this poetry form from its origins and was instrumental in changing the tone to be more serious. But it seems that Kikaku wanted to follow the more traditional style, and his writing was a little bit rougher. Than Bachel's was. But Bachel did influence some tone change, so perhaps Kikaku's rougher style did become a little more refined due to this influence. 
And I did read that Kikaku's style was followed, like after Bushel's death, Kikaku's style for Haikai was, was followed. Now, I do need to have a deeper study into uh, Kikaku and Haikai, but that is the interpretation I have at this moment, that even though there was that kind of more rougher idea to poetry by Shou, did sort of change that tone. And Kikaku may have gone a little bit more his way, but Basho did influence how he went forward after Basho's death. Now, Kikaku does have a collection of poems called the Minashiguri, and they were published in 1683. And he also wrote about Basho's final days and after his death. And in English, which it has been translated to, it's called An Account of Our Master Basho's Last Days. All right, so that's a little bit about Kikaku. And uh, any questions or are you ready for the poem? No questions, but Haikai did ring a bell with me in that I thought I'd come across it when I was doing some research to put on the website. I wasn't entirely wrong, but I was misremembering slightly. So I was actually thinking of no, as something. So another form of poetry, which I don't know if you've heard of yet, known as Haishi. Ooh, okay, now I've not written into Haishi yet. What is Haishi? So from the tiny bit that I can gather, from what I can gather from what you said, so like Haikai is a very structured type of poetry, like with its linked verses. But what I can tell from the bit of research I came across, so we're going back to Yosano Buson, who we've talked about before. Yes. And he was known to have done haiku as well as haishi, which was a free form version of haikai oh, and okay. was a a free form style of poetry which used both japanese and chinese in its structure and that's all i know basically hmm. so yes no questions but i kind of knew a little bit about haikai because i'd heard of a completely different type of poetry <laughs> Yeah, the, the, the more you, you look into poetry, the more you'll run into different the different genres. And I don't know if you had a chance to look at the poem or not. I did. Ah, oh, don't. You already know what the poem says. So if I ask you to, re to translate it, you're going to already be able to do it. Not really. I, I mean, I read the poem an hour and a half ago. So I have forgot the poem. So don't worry. Yay. I'm so excited. I love that so much, that, that, that extra challenge. Because there's a few words in here I know you're going to know. Sakuragari. Kyo wa meguro no shirube seyo. All right, Thomas. So what words did you hear? The first line was sakura. And then there was another word in there, which I wasn't too sure about. Mm. And then you said kyo wa. So like today, and then wa, I'm assuming, is the particle in this situation. You are correct, sir. Okay. And then I heard meguro, and I only know meguro as a place. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping that we're on about the place. And I heard you say like meguro no, and then some Japanese I didn't quite understand. So again, you're using no as a, another particle to join it to the next part of the sentence. Yay! So something about today in Meguro and cherry blossoms. Yeah, you are on the right track because there's a few words in there I don't know either. The translation is searching blossoms. Today, let's get a guide to Meguro. So you are spot on with Meguro being the place. 
And right now I have seen on television, there are cherry blossoms in Meguro. There is a river that goes through Meguro that has the cherry blossom trees. And it is a very popular location to see the cherry blossoms. I have not seen it in person. I haven't gone to Meguro. Um, there's also other locations for cherry blossoms, which we've mentioned, but there's also Ueno Park. And there's a few other places in Tokyo, but I think those two are the ones I, I think of most when I think of the, the cherry blossom viewing sites. So even back in the you know 1600s, they were going to look at cherry blossoms in Meguro. So cherry blossom viewing has been a long-standing tradition, actually. Very long. That is my poem for today. Thomas, do you have anything to add or any questions? I'm, I'm interested in the poem in that, why would you need a guide to see cherry blossoms? Well, I think we probably would want to look up during this time period, I would assume you'd want to look up kind of like the geological information. Was this part like I think some parts of Meguro, even a few few decades ago, weren't quite as developed as they are now. I mean, Tokyo expanded greatly in the past few decades. So I mean, the past few centuries, I'm sure it went from being this big to absolutely huge and since during this time period tokyo wasn't was to tokyo wasn't the capital was it was it edo at this point was edo the capital of japan at this point like during this time period it so around 1868 during the meiji Ref restoration the royal family moved out of kyoto into their new imperial home in tokyo if the capital had kind of just moved or was getting in the Cause I don't know. I don't know when this poem was written. So I'm sure that the capital wasn't quite. So it's very possible that to even get to Meguro, perhaps it wasn't along the main trail. So maybe you needed a guide to actually get to Meguro to view the cherry blossoms. I don't know for sure. That would be my assumption. I mean, we think of Tokyo now being this huge sprawling metropolis, but a few years ago, well, centuries ago, it probably was a lot smaller. I mean, just based mm. on the, you know, the ukiyo-e we've seen, like the different views of like even just Mount Fuji and some of the more populated areas we are familiar with now, looking at the posters of the different places in Japan and seeing the different views of Fuji and how it looks so, so different. There were no, there were no cities, there were no towns. You could see this amazing view of Fuji because there wasn't buildings and now there is a lot of them. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. But that's a good point. <laughs> Alrighty then. So Thomas, returning it back to you. Actually, no, I'm going to hand it back to you because as usual, we that now say what next week is going to be about, but next week is actually going to be led by you. So take it away. I will take the baton back. Next week, we're going to dive back into the world of culinary history, and we are going to start, probably start to discover rice, because just doing some basic research, we might have to come back again to rice because it is a huge part, a huge part of not just um, culinary history, it's a huge part of Japanese history. So we'll discover more about rice next week. Okay, well, I'm looking forward to it. I don't really know much about that part of the culinary history of Japan. And I will try my best to find a poem about rice. I'm going to assume there will be one. But anyway, yeah, I think, well, that is at least everything from me today. Do you have anything else to add, Heather? 
I think for right now, I'm good. I had to think for a minute. I'm still stuck on rice. <laughs> All right. Well, guys, we will speak to you next week. I am still a little bit behind with the show notes. This week has been a little stressful <laughs> with everything that's happening everywhere. So apologies for that. But I'm saying this now. If I say it now on the podcast, I will have to do it. So tomorrow, all the show notes will be up and up to date for everyone. So Saturday, everything will be up to date for you guys. So yeah, that is everything from me. So until next week, matane. Minasan. If you've enjoyed the Japan archives, please consider checking out historyofjapan.co.uk, a database we are making on Japanese history. You can also find the show notes for all our episodes here. If you're on Instagram, you can follow my account over at nexus underscore travels, that's N E X U S underscore travels. We also have a Facebook and Twitter page, which you can find at Japan Archives. If you're interested in little slices of life in Japan, be sure to check out my website over at heatheroveryonder.com. Thank you for tuning in today. We hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you have any suggestions for future episodes, have anything you'd love to hear about, head on over to historyofjapan.co.uk and send us a message. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to give us a rating and review over on iTunes. Thank you again for listening, guys. Until next time, bye. Matane!